This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the well-researched and well-written volume, Calvin Meets Voltaire, the Clergy of Geneva, during the Age of Enlightenment, 1685 to 1798, Jennifer Powell McNutt argued that there was more continuity than has sometimes been thought between 18th century Genevan theology, piety, and practice and that of Calvin's Geneva in the 16th century. She leans particularly upon the sermons preached by the ministers in Geneva to make her case that in the 18th century... As the Genevan church faced modernity, they adapted their teaching to meet the challenge, but without compromising essentials of the Christian faith. And that's the question at hand. We had the pleasure of talking with Dr. McNutt recently on Office Hours about her thesis, and it seemed worth following up that discussion with our own Dr. Ryan Glomsrud, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Ryan teaches our courses on modern theology, and he earned his DPhil at Oxford University on Karl Barth, and he's done postdoctoral research at Harvard University. He's an ordained elder at Christ United Reformed Church in Santee, California. This is part one of our two-part interview with Dr. Glomsrud. Hi, Ryan, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Good to see you. First of all, when we talk about Protestant orthodoxy, what are we talking about? Well, that's a good place to begin in thinking about this important book, because we all know the Reformation well, or hopefully we do. We're always learning more, uh, but it's good to go back and review this less familiar terrain, especially the high and later periods of Protestant orthodoxy. And already there, I'm using two terms that have been really introduced and handed down to us from Richard Muller. You've done some great Office Hours episodes uh, and interviews with Martin Clauber and with Richard Muller and now recently with, with Dr. McNutt. And so some of our listeners will be more familiar than others with this period. But Protestant Orthodoxy is a broad period of Protestant ecclesiastical and theological history. And Muller, I think, helpfully divides it into to three phases or eras. Early, which is kind of your period of real specialization, we can circle back and talk about some of the key figures and developments of, of early orthodoxy. But the second and third are really the ones that come into view today in thinking about Professor McNutt's book, the high period of orthodoxy, and then especially the late period. So the early period, you know, well, it's near and dear to your heart, Caspar Livion, and a whole host of theologians who come to prominence after the key reformers died. Most of the reformers died within five years of each other, really, but from 1560 to, to 1565, give or take. And there's a generational passing of the baton to a whole host of extraordinarily gifted reformed theologians who build on the work that's been done by the reformers, building on their exegesis, on their confession writing, on their church orders. The organization of the church really takes shape so um, and matures. In early orthodoxy, we're mainly thinking about the church, sure. although there's some concern about the academy, and Calvin's academy begins in that period. It's a period that runs from 1560s into the 1640s, so it runs up to and through the Armenian controversy and the Synod of Dort. So we think about all the confessional documents that were written in those periods, or in that first period, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Scots Confession, the Second Helvetic Confession— and then you get all the way, if you count the 1640s, you get all the way to the Westminster Standards from mm-hmm. the 1640s. Yeah, exactly. William Perkins, um, Theodore Beza, 
mentioned one sort of English and one continental theologian. Those are some of the key figures, along with the real players at the Synod of Dort, Franciscus Gomaris and others. And you get into the 17th century, the academy becomes more important. For sure, for sure. It's a whole changing intellectual and social climate. And so, you know, most of us have studied and, and are more familiar with that early period, Caspar Livion, Zacharias of Sinus, sort of late reformers, early Orthodox theologians, kind of in that period. And we know a few of the key high Orthodox theologians. This is a period that runs, at least according to Muller, really from the close of the Thirty Years' War from the 1640s into the early 18th century to 1720, 1725, I think is where he dates it. And some of the big theologians we know here, Francis Turretin, John Owen, Coxeus, Futchess, and some of the later second Dutch Reformation theologians. The Westminster Divines. The Westminster Divines, exactly. But this is a period where you start to see more controversy inside and outside of the church. And that's one of the helpful things about Muller's periodization. Inside the church, the Amaraldian controversy is most important. It, it consumes much of the time of the theologians as they wrestle with a whole host of issues, not just Emeraldianism narrowly defined as a debate about the extent of the atonement, but a whole cluster of issues about scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit, basic accounts of, of soteriology. All, all these things are at stake and being debated for the most part within the boundaries set by the earlier confessions. Although the Amaraldians begin to push against that and it causes controversy. And so inside the church, it's one of the main controversies. Outside of the church, there are new sorts of threats that are beginning to arise. Sassinianism. Which is what? Which is Unitarianism, essentially. These are the followers of Lelio and particularly Faustus Socinus or Sozini. These were Biblicists. They said, we're just following the Bible. So they claim to believe the Bible. But they also were deeply influenced by reason, Mm. and they placed reason above Scripture, and they said, in effect, whatever is not amenable to natural reason can't necessarily be believed, can't be imposed by the church. And so they gave up the doctrine of the Trinity. They gave up the doctrine of the atonement. They gave up the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And so they laid the foundation for what we know as universalism. This becomes a serious challenge. So from the beginning of the 17th century, the Reformed have faced the threat and the challenge of Arminianism and Socinianism. They arise about the same time. And there's some interplay between them. We can come back to that. Also, there's a resurgent Romanism, right? During the 16th century, the Reformed and the Lutheran sort of routed Rome academically, intellectually. Very true. We could read Greek and Hebrew. They couldn't as well as we. Uh, We could exposit the scriptures in a way that was persuasive, and they were not able to. But after the 17th century, as that begins, there's really a counterpunch from Rome and some pretty serious intellectual figures. That's true. The Counter-Reformation, and especially the Jesuit contribution to the Counter-Reformation, or now people prefer to to call it the, the Catholic Reformation, really revitalized the Roman tradition. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And it becomes a really serious threat that the Very true. Reformed well, it also it corresponds with you know the beginning of an emerging colonial empire, the strength and power of the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, and the exploration of the New World, bringing Catholic missions and missionaries with them as they go and travel. So Catholicism is really on the rise, and our Reformed fathers are responding to all of these challenges within and outside of the church. People like Robert Bellarmine, Mm -hmm. uh, Suarez, 
Molina, the listener may have heard of Molinism. Very right? true. Do- yeah. Theories about uh, what God knows and the way he knows things. Pretty sophisticated questions that the Reformed were having to address. Well, both traditions are becoming more sophisticated philosophically. And, and this and goes back to something that you said earlier. I mean, this is really coincides with the age of reason. We're not dealing with the Enlightenment yet. But it's coming. But it's coming. It's the beginning of a real shift and change in the intellectual environment. By the middle of the 17th century, uh, René Descartes dies, 1650. And he had raised a whole series of challenges to Reformed orthodoxy. And Spinoza was already on the scene who will... And he's a pantheist, right? He's saying that God is everything. That's right. And you've got, before long, you're going to face rationalists, people who are openly saying that the human intellect is the measure of all things. Yeah. And if you don't accept that, if you don't agree with that in reason based on that premise, then you're no longer to be regarded as a reasonable person. It's an age of troubled reason. Criticism is beginning to erode the foundations of faith, the foundations of older versions of philosophy. This is broader than just sort of an attack on Christianity. Educational curriculum is changing in response to new discoveries in science, exploration, geography, etc. So there's a much bigger story here. And so in some ways, it's not altogether different from the time in which we live, right? We live in a time of— An age of transition. And I think that's actually how Muller— describes it in some of his work as an age of transition. I mean, scientifically, we've watched the rise of nuclear physics, right? Particle physics, string theory, all kinds of sophisticated and difficult ways of explaining the natural world that have challenged assumptions that were held for hundreds of years prior. And And you used a word there, even without maybe recognizing it, challenges is exactly the word for it. They're not necessarily threats. Yeah. It'd be easy to look back at the story and imagine that our Reformed brothers thought of these all as threats. Maybe some of them were. And some of them did. And some of them did. Right? I mean, we um, had people— we They had were pe- certainly challenges, obstacles, new questions that needed to be answered. And so the high Orthodox period was a lively one for our tradition and for intellectual life. And It was also a time a of great piety and devotion. So we think of some of these writers, particularly people like Owen and in that tradition, but also the Dutch. Yeah, Wilhelmus uh, Abrockel— uh, Herman Witsius. Herman Witsius, exactly. So these are theological writers. They're incredibly well-read. Many of them read not only Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, but they also read Syrian and other ancient and languages. And they composed prayer books and wrote exegetical commentaries. They really worked in all of the areas and genres of theological writing. And they were, at the same time, many of them pastors of congregations. So they had multiple phases to their career where they might teach in a school, but they might also pastor, sometimes pastor congregations for a long time. And they would just as easily write treatises about assurance and prayer and uh, the Ten Commandments, as well as writing about the atonement or the nature of the divine decrees. That's right. And those sorts of things. So it's a diverse period. But then there's this third period, late orthodoxy. Yeah. Sort of shadowy. We don't really know the figures as well. I mean, if I say Owen— Can I go back one second? Because you're right. As the high period of orthodoxy draws to a close, there are probably two significant events, one theological and one really civil, political. The first is Francis Turretin's death in 1687. It'd be hard to overestimate the importance of Turretin and his work for the Reformed Church's theological and otherwise. David Steinmetz refers to Turton's death as the ending of an epoch, the closing of an age of Reformed theological history. And 
I think that's probably true. He's famous for writing a three-volume Institutes of Elenctic Theology. This was a work that was designed to address the questions that people were All asking. All these challenges we're mentioning. And so he, he didn't sit down to write a systematic theology in the way that, for example, we think of Dr. Horton's or Louis Burkhoff's or Charles Hodge's or... Going back to the 17th century, Amandus Polanus wrote a major systematic theology that not very many people have read, but it was influential in its time. It wasn't that sort of a thing where you just sort of start at A and go all the way to Z and answer everything in between, but rather he was saying, well, here's a set of questions under this topic, and here's a set of questions under that topic. And uh, he proceeded to answer those questions. And that's a well-known volume or well-known work because it's in English translation. And so the reader can easily take a look at that. Now it's available um, electronically as an e-book as well as a hard copy. That's right. And the other event that's political in nature, two years before Turretin's death in 1685, a very important date in European history, is the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. And here we start to talk about and set the stage for Professor McNutt's book. Henry IV, his grandson, Louis XIV, revokes the edicts of toleration, tolerating Protestant worship in France, and begins to curtail the freedoms that were granted to the Huguenots in France. And this leads to a major exodus, really, of Reformed Protestants out of France. Many of them, it turns out, go just as they did in the early days of the Reformation. They flee to Geneva, or they flee to the Netherlands, or to Germany, is also becoming a popular destination. And the New World. And the New World, and England, and from England through to the New World. So the implications of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and what this will mean for questions of religious tolerance and violence is something that's sort of front and center to the debates that the late Orthodox have. So that's the closing of this high period of orthodoxy leading into this late period, which is dark and mysterious. It's much less well-known than the early and high period, running from roughly 1725 into the 1770s. We're not quite on the eve of the French Revolution in 1789, but we're approaching that climax. So if you can imagine, based on what you know about European history, we're approaching the French Revolution. The world is quite a bit different than it was in the 16th century. That's this late period. Think of, in the New World, in the colonies, think of Jonathan Edwards. Sure. Uh, The Log College. The First Great Awakening. First Great Awakening, the American Revolution in 1776. So second, late orthodoxy covers really most of the 18th century. Yeah, that whole period of time. And Richard Muller calls it something like the aftermath, the afterlife of Protestant orthodoxy. Which implies some decline. This is not the after party. Yeah, this is the afterlife of Protestant orthodoxy. And we could describe some of these theologians who came to prominence, but probably wouldn't be able to say very much about them. You might. Some of them are orthodox, and some of them are in between, and some of them— You've probably talked to Professor Telfer about— Campagius Vitringa. He would be a late Orthodox theologian. Herman Venema, Solomon, Bernard de Moore wrote one of the massive systematic theologies of that period. But then you get others who are included in this group, like Johann Tobias Beck, who other people would classify as a pietist. And so you get some sense, just mentioning Beck's name and his connections to pietism, that this is a more diverse maybe fragmented period of theological history. I like to tell the students it's the beginning of the rise of the isms, revivalism, rationalism, pietism, etc. So it's a much more diverse period. At the end of it, of course, you start to see, at least in philosophy, the various crises 
that will lead to Emmanuel Kant's great contribution. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we are justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. What's happening philosophically in the 18th century? Carrying on what had already begun during the High Orthodox period, it's the carrying, the, the extension of the rationalist tradition into new forms. Neology would be one. Wolfianism, after Christian Wolf. These theologians are debating with pietists. Sometimes they themselves were pietists. So let's define these terms. In general terms, when we're talking about pre-enlightenment or an early enlightenment rationalism, we're talking about a movement that says that the human intellect is the measure of all things. That's right. And I think that's how you put it before. Rationalism would be much more positive uses and appropriations of philosophy, of natural science, of learning, so much so that by the time you get to a full-blown rationalist theology, the supernatural elements, quote-unquote, begin to diminish or completely disappear from accounts of religion and theology. So when you say supernatural elements, you're talking about the scriptures, you're talking about belief, confidence in the, the miraculous. That's right. The divinity of Christ is increasingly challenged, and even theologians who are qualified or described as late Orthodox have questions and reservations and sometimes outright deny the divinity of Christ. At the same time, there's a group of philosophers known as empiricists mm-hmm. who are saying that if I can't experience it with my senses, then it doesn't exist. That's and so true. you've got empiricists who say that the sense experience of man is ultimate. It's the measure of all things. You have rationalists saying the intellect of man is the measure of all things. So in both cases, I define what is and what can be. Whereas in the uh, 17th century, most of the time, most people had said God, through his word or through his church, if you're a Romanist, defined reality. So now the questions have shifted fairly dramatically from what has God said to, increasingly, has God said, right? So there's the beginning of what we know as high criticism of Scripture is underway. Thomas Jefferson is going to edit his own edition of the New Testament where he omits all of the supernatural elements from the New Testament. He likes Jesus as a moral teacher, but he's not crazy about Jesus being true God and true man Uh, being crucified, died, buried, raised on the third day, ascending, and being seated at the right hand of the Father. So he sort of eviscerates Christianity of the supernatural. That's right. And all of that is happening intellectually. In terms of church life, this is the beginning of pietism, the advent of pietism. Yeah, that was the next ism I wanted you to define. What are we talking about when you say pietism? Well, pietism is a sort of hotly contested and debated topic. Precisely how to define it, what were its origins, these are some of the questions that people ask. But it's the interiorization of religion. Religion becomes more emotive, more about attitudes and moods. It's the religion of the heart, born-again religion. More about experience. It's certainly more about experience. Now, it's not that the earlier Reformed hadn't been interested in experience, because Owen 
and Fuchs and you mentioned Wilhelmus of Brockel and even before them, William Ames and Perkins and, and virtually all of the Reformed writers had written at length about a vital Christian experience, a living, active experience of a living, active God. But they had tended to relate it to the preaching of the gospel, the use of the sacraments. And so it was experience in the context of the church. But now with the pietists, uh, Labadee and some of the other leading figures of pietism, Bame, Philip Jakob Spainer. Spainer. And so that movement tends to lead us away from the objective, right, the means of grace, the preaching of the gospel and the, and the sacraments, and principally to the subjective. That's a good way of putting it, and very closely related to that are changing authority structures within the church. You see the rise of the laity and the decline of the function or the authority of ordained officers within the church. And so it's a movement, a small group movement, if you will. The priesthood of all believers is so emphasized that it begins to undermine the special office of ministers. And so that's also part of what Professor McNutt's book addresses, our authority functions within the church. And we'll especially want to talk about the authority of the confessions and of scripture in this period. And these things are beginning to shift to change. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. All right, so let's do that now. In the 17th century, 16th and 17th centuries, the Reformed Orthodox and the churches wrote confessions, authoritative summaries of what the churches had concluded about a variety of questions. But by the 18th century, those confessions come to be somewhat marginalized. People are paying less attention to them in favor of attention to either reason, sense experience, or one's immediate personal spiritual experience of the risen Christ. Is that a fair summary? I think so. A part of that is the story that's been handed down to us. We've inherited a story about this late Orthodox period, partly because it's just been understudied. It's been somewhat neglected, and so it's it's mysterious, as we mentioned. Where did we get that story? So the story that we've heard is really a story of decline, a story of secularization, the gradual disappearance of vital, living, orthodox religion. And, I mean, it actually is a story about, as we've inherited it, something like what Christian Smith talks about, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Maybe less therapeutic at this point, it's maybe just moralistic deism. Which is a good summary of Immanuel Kant, right? And the French Enlightenment philosophers are the very ones who really gave this story legs. There's some amusing darkly amusing, I suppose you'd have to say, stories that have been handed down to us from the French philosophes, the Enlightenment philosophers. Diderot, in his 1757 encyclopedia, describes the religious situation in Geneva and says they no longer believe in the divinity of Christ. They advocate a moral example theory of the atonement. And the picture that he fills out is a sort of polite, almost Victorian stuffy kind of religion. To use Victorian would be a little anachronistic, but it's kind of tea time religion. You can imagine tubby ministers wearing powdered wigs, 
you know, resting their tea saucers on their bellies as they make pastoral visitations. It's polite religion, but they really don't have a lot of moral, or I should say, they don't really have a theological backbone. And that's the story that Jennifer McNutt is challenging in her book. Absolutely. And and the best quotation that I know of is actually from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was from Geneva, exiled for a while, returned. In his letters from the mountain, he has this to say, the pastors of Geneva are a strange breed. That may very well have been true. But then he goes on, one knows not what they believe, nor what they do not believe, nor even what they pretend to believe. And so you get this picture of kind of bumbling incompetence. It's a story of decline. Another word that's been used by Richard Muller and others is a pygony. These are the theologians who are best described as offspring, as a pygony. And there's a whole story going back to the classical world. The epigony in Greek mythology were the children of the second and third generations who carried on fighting the Theban wars. So, I mean, in, in Greek mythology, Oedipus's two sons go to war against each other over who will be king of Thebes. And they both die in the first war. And shortly thereafter, a second Theban war is launched by their children, their offspring. And it's implied that they're inferior descendants. It's sort of like the Hatfields and McCoys. They're not really sure why they're fighting anymore, but they go off to war and are bumblers, really. And that's the story that's told about the late Orthodox theologians. They become deists. They're theologically confused at best. Marty Clauber says that, for example, Turretin's son... Jean-Alphonse Turretini and the others, Jacob Vernet, right? He describes them this way. He says they more closely resembled the remonstrant Socinian tradition than Calvinism. That's right. They still cling to a few select definitions of theological topics handed down to them. Sometimes they continue to use the same vocabulary of the high and early Orthodox tradition, but they import new meanings to these terms. And so they're epigony, they're inferior descendants, they're repristinators is another term. They're repristinating, replicating older definitions to greater and lesser extent while importing new meaning and perhaps only having the flimsiest grasp on what these definitions are actually saying and claiming. This is part one of our two-part interview with Dr. Glomser. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.